Thank you for listening to this episode of the Public Circle Podcast. My name is Adam Olson. I'm the member of the British Columbia Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands. If this is your first time listening to my podcast, welcome. If you've listened to previous episodes, then welcome back. In the 19th episode of the Public Circle podcast, I chat with Helen Davis. Helen is a registered professional biologist and owns Artemis Wildlife Consultants. She's been a consultant for the past 27 years. We initially met at a conference for biologists where I was a speaker on a panel about defining the public interest. She had heard of the work that I and my BC Green colleagues are doing for grizzly bears and old-growth forests. She wanted to expand our perspective. So we set up a meeting, and she introduced me to a much bigger world of bears. There is no question that grizzlies capture a lot of the attention when it comes to bears, and, as a result, we miss important aspects of the whole bear story. We have a ranging discussion about bears, her work in nature, what she has witnessed over the years, and the growing problem with bear dens. This is a fascinating episode where I learn a lot about bears, and I hope you will gain a whole new respect for our bear friends. We'll talk about everything from the basics of the different types of bears to a high-level look at a year in the life of a bear to life in a bear den. Which brings me to the point of my initial meeting with Helen. Old-growth logging is having a huge impact on black bears on Vancouver Island. Black bears need big, old, rotting trees to den in. If they cannot find those trees... They don't reproduce. And if they don't reproduce, well, then we have a much bigger issue. Unfortunately, there is currently no protection for bear dens, and Helen is trying to get them on the list as wildlife habitat features. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Helen Davis. Maybe start, Helen, uh, by giving us a, a bio. Who's Helen Davis? I am a registered professional biologist. I have my own consulting company, Artemis Wildlife Consultants. Uh, Artemis is the bear goddess, the huntress. Um, so that's how our company name came into being. And uh, I've been consulting basically my whole career, about 27 years. What got you interested in, uh, in biology? Gosh, probably back to growing up watching the nature of things, really. Um, that's probably what sparked my interest and I was always good in math and sciences and uh, and when I was in my first year of university I um, met a fellow who was <laughs> on long-term disability because he had fallen in a polar bear den and um, the mother wasn't very happy about that and had swiped him with her paw and sent him flying back out the hole he'd fallen in and the only thing I got from that story was that you could work on bears for a living and that is that's how all this started. That's what caused me to stay in university and uh, and try and get into the field, which wasn't easy um, as a woman. Yeah. What is it about bears that has intrigued you? I don't or know. Or that I does just, intrigue you. I yeah, guess it still does. I've, I just always love them. I love watching them. I love to see their behaviors and how they react to things. And I love watching them play and just eat and everything about them. I don't, I don't actually really know where it started. Interesting. I've, I've only ever had the opportunity to see a couple of bears in like in person, I guess. And one of the things that I've, uh, that I've noticed about them is just their kind of lackadaisical sort of when, when they see me, it's like, eh. yeah. I'm far more excited to see them than <laughs> they are to see me. And, yeah. you know, you just get this this persona of this, you know, big mean bear, but really it was just like, 
it could be like a roly poly bear too. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're such forgiving animals. Like people are generally kind of scared of them, but really if people knew how often they were running into them at close range and nothing ever happens and the bear just leaves, um, I, I think they would understand just how forgiving they are. And I was giving a workshop on Monday about bear denning and, uh, I was explaining what the foods that they eat through the year, and, and they actually eat a lot of flowers, especially this time of year. Um, and I'm like, you know, there's your big, mean, scary bear chowing down on flowers. <laughs> right. Well, my uh, my father-in-law, uh, he lives, uh, or he lived in, uh, the, he still lives in the Fraser Canyon, but he's moved. And uh, he used to run a campground in the Fraser Canyon. And he had a couple of resident bears nearby. He had a big dog that, and, and, the dog Luke kind of managed the relationship, but you know the whole thing, and and uh, there was a mutual respect between the dog and the bears, and um, and and he would tell me that the only time that there was any real concern that he had for the campers in the campground and for wa- and and f- for the other animals around was when food sources were scarce, mm-hmm. and that was when the bears started to really take on a behavior that was that 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 he couldn't, like, he couldn't track them. He couldn't keep track of where they were because they were, um, they, when they were hungry was when they were growly the most. Right, yeah. And, and definitely in the fall as they go into their hyperphagic state where they're having to eat and eat and eat and try and pack on the weight. If the fall foods aren't there, whether that's salmon or, or berries, then, uh, they get a little bit more desperate. Right. So why not share a little bit about the presentation that you were giving? Give the listeners a, an idea of what the life cycle, an annual cycle of a bear is. It Start maybe from when it wakes up um, from hibernation. Spring. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically a bear's job in life is to gain weight. That is the overriding reason for being. I guess there's also reproducing too, but <laughs> but mostly it's gaining weight. And so... Um, that's also how they get into trouble. They are, are, are supposed to test everything. Is this food? Is this food? Is this food? And, and they're extremely smart. So if they've tried something once and they've gotten a reward from it and it, it turns out that it is food, then they'll keep coming back for that. And they have incredible memories. They know where that was and how to get back there. And, um, it's, it's something that doesn't help them out too much, I'm afraid. Um, but, you know, they start in the spring on the green vegetation and uh, getting into the flowers before the first berries are ripe and eating salmonberry shoots, the, the bases of the salmonberry plants, um, until the salmonberries themselves are ripe and into um, salmonberries, thimbleberries, and into elderberries, and then all the uh, huckleberries start becoming ripe, the red huckleberries and the blueberries until the fall when the salals finally ripe and then that's kind of one of the longest berry seasons is is eating salal until they den but throughout the summer eating a lot of uh, insects ants and stuff in logs and uh, and if they're really lucky bears hopefully they have salmon in their home ranges that um, is the the biggest weight gain they're going to get they do get some meat in the form of of uh, calves ungulate calves so deer uh, fawns and stuff um, but it's not a lot in a fairly short period for them that they can get something like that. Um, so the salmon's a really big influence on how fat they get. And if they don't get fat enough, the females can't produce cubs. So um, they are delayed implanters, and uh, they breed in the early spring or late, or sorry, late spring or early summer. Um, but the cell, the 
egg and the sperm meet and only develop to an eight cell stage called the blastocyst, which um, just floats around in the female until fall. And if she's gained enough weight, that will implant and she'll have cubs. So that's a really interesting part of the biology um, that weasels do the same thing. Um, and so if they don't gain enough weight, they, they won't reproduce. And then, then we get into the denning season, which if they don't have a secure den means they can't produce cubs either. So Interesting. And so they, they basically um, are on the search for protein and on the search for food for the entire summer. And they, and they move from one yeah. food source to another. Yeah. And that explains what my father-in-law was talking about when it came down to uh, the desperation that he saw with mm-hmm. them. That, that was the word that I was looking yeah. for. They yeah. became very desperate and it was and, and erratic. Their behavior became erratic. And that whole sort of spring-summer period, they're really just subsisting. They're not actually particularly getting much, putting much weight on. It is the fall when they actually turn that into fat and start putting that on. So they're just kind of managing to live on the green vegetation and stuff in the early year. Um, some of the bears do a bit better, if, uh, especially the grizzly bears on sedges that have a higher protein content up the coast. Um, but yeah, depends on where they live, what they can get. So uh, we have a, a number of different bear populations in British Columbia. Uh, maybe describe those. I, one of the things that I remember from our the first time that we met uh, was a comment that you made about the, because I had big bears <laughs> on, written on the, on the whiteboard behind me. And he said that the focus is always on the grizzly bears, but what about the black bear, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a number of different bear populations in British Columbia. Maybe just provide a, an overview. Uh, yeah, I, we have black bears over really all of BC. Um, the Haida Gwaii uh, subspecies is, is uh, a bit distinct. Um, Vancouver Island just has black bears. I, hopefully everybody knows that. We only have black bears here and the odd grizzly who swims across. Um, and then grizzly bears are, don't have as wide a distribution as, as black bears. You know, there's no grizzly bears on Haida Gwaii or usually Vancouver Island. Um, and uh, they're missing from the Okanagan and, uh, and up through the middle of BC a little bit there um, and not doing very well in some of their southern ranges of, of BC. Um, but black bears are, are a bit more widespread. Um, however, the province doesn't really know what the black bear population is because they've never undertaken any population censuses. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of DNA hair collection work has been done for grizzly bears to count them, but the same work has not gone into black bears at all. Is a, is a black bear in southern BC or on Vancouver Island the, the same exactly the same as a black bear in northern British Columbia? Is there different species? Here, I'm exposing my lack of <laughs> subspecies. attention in biology. They do consider Vancouver Island a, a different subspecies. I'm not sure if anybody has been looking at that lately. I, I don't sort of tend to think of that, but I, I, they were considered as separate subspecies. The Haida Gwaii one uh, definitely is. Um, but everywhere that they live, they have different um, lifestyles where they have different access to, you know, whether they have salmon or not, or um, ungulates or not, and different berry sources and, and things. So it can be a bit different uh, wherever you are. And the interior bears tend to be smaller because they don't have access to salmon, for example. Right. So what's a brown bear? Brown bear is a grizzly bear. So that's really confusing for people, um, <laughs> especially because, you know, black bears can be brown, they can be cinnamon, they can be white. There's even a, a blue uh, colored one called a glacier bear bear up in northwestern BC. Um, but basically 
we call them grizzly bears and Americans tend to call them brown bears um, is, is the difference. And Europeans tend to call them brown bears too. Um, so it makes it confusing sometimes when people are speaking and brown bears or grizzly bears can almost be black as well. So going by color of the bear that is standing in front of you will never tell you exactly what it is. So we got a black bear that can be almost any color. We've got a grizzly bear that's generally a brown bear, but sometimes can be a black bear. And then we have a... Sp- and they can get pretty blondy with the, when they get bleached out and everything on their grizzled hair. So, you know, yeah, they can look really light too. And then we have a spirit bear. And the spirit bear is your white black bear. That yeah. is a white black bear. That is a so white black bear. not a grizzly bear. It it's is a- not a grizzly bear. It is a white black bear. So it's a genetic... Uh, um, uh, mutation that, that causes that. So that's up in the Princess Royal Island area, the few islands around it, and then there's a little bit of it up in the terrace area. Um, yeah, the spirit bear. Interesting. So you don't find that mutation broadly? It, you you just identified it, it a couple of... It pops up every once in a while because it's, because it's a genetic mutation. It can happen um, kind of spontaneously. So I believe it, it uh, you know, we get the odd white bear from down in the States or something and I don't know actually if anybody's ever got hair samples and done the test to make sure that it's the exact same mutation or not, but um, I believe it's the same mutation that causes uh, a Labrador retriever dogs to be the blonde. Um, and, you know, you have black labs and yellow labs. I think I believe it's the, the same mutation. And sometimes when you look at the Karoti bears, the spirit bears, they do have that kind of yellow tinge to them that you go, oh, yeah, I guess that would be, <laughs> be about right. But a, a black female can produce one white cub and one black cub and um so yeah it's all quite mixed up and you just use the word kermode bear Mm -hmm. which is another name for for a spirit bear for a spirit bear lots of bears yes well that was good i'm I'm, i appreciate the opportunity to learn a little bit more about bears i mean i think i think that there's a we we have this uh really fascinating relationship with with bears and i talked about the my few interactions with them, but I, but they are certainly an animal that conjures a, a big imagination for people. And when, when I talk about them, and yes, particularly did a lot more talking about the grizzly bears than the black bears, and we'll get into um, the issues that you've raised in the meeting previously with me about black bears and the work that you're doing around their dens. But uh, there is this feeling, I think, generally that British Columbians have towards bears. Um, I know that we're always looking for and counting them when we go out camping. Um, so, uh, do you is that you see that across the province the connection that people have with this animal? Yeah, I mean, there's often a, a fear of bears, which just really comes from a lack of knowledge. And, and I think if people get more educated on how to respond when they run into wild bears um, and learn to carry bear spray, which is highly effective, um, that that can help with the fear. But we also have a real love of them. We have quite a large bear viewing industry in BC, whether it's, uh, you know, day trips to, to see bears in some places or, um, you know, sailboat-based and lodge-based uh, amazing places and on the coast to watch them. And and the spirit bears or Kermode bears are a, a big part of that. There's a lot of people who want to go up and and see the the spirit bears in the sort of Clem 2, Princess Royal Island area. Um, and those are black bears. And so I think we do need to acknowledge that we um, there is a real interest in, in black bears, not just grizzly bears in BC. So I had on the whiteboard, I've talked about this in my blog and I've talked about this with people. I've had on my black, on my whiteboard, 
on my <laughs> on my cremo- <laughs> on, on my non genetically mutated cremody board uh, in, in my office. Um, big bears, big trees, big fish, and I had lines drawn between the three of them. It's kind of like I called it the trifecta. This these issues are ones that move British Columbians in in ways that I I haven't seen other issues move British Columbians. Um, and there are real connections between the three of them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I saw that on your whiteboard. I was like, oh, I'm in the right place here. <laughs> I mean, th- yeah, that is everything about everything that I do is, is, is those three things. I mean, um, bears are, are super important to me and, and bears won't exist without big trees, especially on Vancouver Island and, and, and none of the bears will exist if we don't have salmon, um, you know, even saving the trees for dens is, is not really an issue if we don't have salmon to to support these populations. And, I mean, I've worked up and down the whole coast for 25-plus <laughs> years, and it just shocks me to see how few salmon are in some of the, the rivers that I've been to when I have the escapement data of how many salmon are supposed to be there spawning. And, you know, if it's even a tenth of it at times, I'd be happy. It's, uh, it's so bad. So um, certainly... Salmon is a huge issue to me and, and one that deserves a, a ton of attention in this province. I think if the public really realized how bad it was, they would be protesting in the streets, I would hope. Um, and then the big trees, you know, that is certainly an issue in, in BC and especially coastal BC and especially Vancouver Island. Um, I have did my master's degree on black bear denning uh, in the early 90s up in the Nimkish Valley and... Uh, at that point, we learned that black bears spend their winters in uh, often inside large hollow trees or the remnants of large hollow trees, logs that were left behind from logging or stumps and uh, and blown over trees. And um, and so, it, you know, by 1995, we, we, we knew this and, and we've been trying to get den trees protected and that just hasn't happened. So I've been trying to to push the issue a little bit more with the government and, and try and make, make that happen at this point. As I said before, I mean, bears can't reproduce unless they go into a den. Females can only produce babies when they're in a den because the cubs are born quite helpless with eyes closed and they're like little kittens. And um, so they need to grow up inside a safe, warm, protective den for a few months before they can leave. So uh, they need to have these structures if we want to continue to have uh, black bear populations in the province. When you came in with the uh, presentation that the the PowerPoint presentation that you showed me, I couldn't believe like they look like this hairless mole or this mm-hmm. little yeah. they don't look like yeah. a bear at all the the cubs I'm talking about, and it's it's really incredible that they grow into and and actually the what's required for them to grow into this magnificent beast that we see you know on the side of the road or on you know walking ambling through nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but it requires a lot of the conditions to be just right just in order right, for them yeah. to get there. And one of those conditions, and, you know, we started to talk about uh, old growth hotspots on Vancouver Island. And that's what I think I, I was at an, at another event, um, the biologist event, actually. And you came up and handed me your card and said, we need to talk because there's this other aspect that you're not talking about that you need to talk about. And that's bear dens. Mm-hmm. And so... Maybe just explain some of the work that you've done over the years, specifically from your master's degree to now in bear dens, because most of the people that are listening to this won't have any experience with bear dens or 
the importance uh, that old growth plays in it. You just can't create, you just can't create these, si- these situations. Trying, <laughs> yeah. So talk about that. Um, well, I think often I get asked like, oh, do bears even den on Vancouver Island because, oh, it's so warm in the winters here and stuff, right? Um, but as we've said, the females can't produce cubs unless they're in a den, so they're going to have to den. But even the males do den, and, and the males be, may den a shorter period of time, like only three months or so. Um, but the females do den for up to six months if they're going to have cubs. So it is a really long time that they're in these structures. And during that time, they don't eat or drink. They don't go to the bathroom at all. And if it's a female having cubs, she's also nursing them. So she's not intaking any energy. She's just staying in her den and, and nursing these these little helpless cubs for a while. So it's it's a physiological marvel. Um, and then the structures that they use for dens, I call them the unicorns of the forest because... Um, they're not just large trees. They have to be large trees with just the right size entrance and they have to be hollow because they've had just the right decay uh, happen on the inside of them. So it's a really, really rare and unique situation that, that creates these, these structures. So uh, many of the dens on, on uh, North Vancouver Island were in hollow red cedar or yellow cedar trees. Um, sometimes they've grown up on a bit of a nurse log, they call it, where so it's caused um, an entranceway, a little triangular entranceway into the hollow core of the tree because uh, cedar trees rot from the inside out. And then, as we all know from our cedar roofs, um, the cedars don't decay very quickly. They last a really long time, which makes them quite unique. The other tree species decay quite quickly. So you get these the hollow trees, and the mean diameter of the hollow trees was uh, 160 centimeters diameter which is a, a big tree. Um, some of the other industry databases is actually even higher than that for the, the diameter. So you need these large trees that have hollows that they can get inside. And uh, it's really, they really are it's sort of the unicorns of the forest. So any of the ones that are found, I, I feel are, are quite important. And uh, um, some of the forest companies do um, conserve them um, on their own volition, but there is no regulation to protect the dens, and that's what I'm trying to change is to have them added to the Wildlife Act or um, have them named as what's called a wildlife habitat feature that can can cause them to be protected. So, um, yeah, the logs and, and the hollow trees and, and some stumps, and um, we're now having, you know, some of these structures were left over from old-growth logging, but now um, they're second-growth harvesting quite extensively, obviously, here, and um, sometimes those structures get destroyed when they're cutting down the second growth forests as well. Um, but you say, oh, we don't we don't make these. I mean, part of the problem is is we've cut all these structures down, but we're not replacing them with anything because we're not allowing forests to grow as large as 160 centimeters diameter at all anymore. And uh, so we're not creating new structures, and the old structures are are decaying. So um, I had a little project, um, experimental project, trying to create new dens um, up in the Jordan River and uh, there we did manage to we found an old cedar stump um, that I think it's about 170 centimeters diameter actually <laughs> and uh, we it was open to the sky allowing rain in because it was a cedar that had been hollow um, so when it was cut down it was open topped and so we capped that with a piece of plywood and some foam and we actually cut an entrance into the base of the stump um, just the right size for a bear den to make it defensible. And uh, lo and behold, a bear found it about a year and a half later, and that's been used as a den by a bear for the last two winters. Do they den in the same 
places they like they can locate a food source, remember where it is, come back to it, harvest it next year, harvest it the year following years. Do they come back to the same den? Like, mm-hmm. will this be the same bear? It likely is, and I'm hoping I've got some hair from it from both winters, so I need to send that off for some genetic analysis to see. Um, from the photos, it kind of looks the same, but um, our coastal black bears are really black and don't have a lot of markings to be able to to tell for sure. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to do that genetics. But they reuse dens a lot. Um, we have been back to the dens in the Nimkish Valley um, repeatedly since the study ended in 95 and have uh, found many of them continuing to be used. And we knew that the original occupants of the dens had, had died during the study for whatever reason, and, and they continue to be used. So they're used by multiple generations of bears. They're handed down through the generations to different bears and and they reuse them a lot. They will skip years between use. Um, Bears love to put a lot of bedding in their dens so they can build really quite amazing intricate looks like a bird nest. It's you know it's got mosses and ferns and and sticks and um, tree boughs and it's incredible what they I don't know how they achieve it but (laughs) but they do. but the, that bedding, I think, can house, like, fleas can live in there for a fairly long time. So that's probably why they skip years between you sometimes, is to try and, and let the things like fleas die out. So sometimes they'll skip years. But, I mean, I know we had one adult male who used the same den three years in a row that we were following him and uh, other females that used them the two years or so that we were following them. So, um, yeah, they're, so they're, they're super important to, to conserve the ones that, that are found and but also to plan for the future with landscape planning to create new dens, like I'm saying, when they um, need to allow some of the trees to grow back large enough to be create new dens. So do they range? Like, do they are, do they stay in the same area, or do they kind of range across a long, long distance? Females have quite small home ranges, um, as small as uh, I think average was less than eight square kilometers, which that's square kilometers. So that's it's quite small. And so dens need to be spread um, across the landscape in order to supply, especially females, with with dens across the landscape. They don't live in, you know, this little area over here and eat all the berries here and then go for a 10-kilometer hike to a den somewhere else. Um, It it generally is within their home range, so they they need to be um, spread across the landscape, and, and that is certainly a problem. And that's why, you know, just having like a big park, like a big Strathcona park, it's like not all the bears on Vancouver Island can pack up their bags and hike to where we've pr- conserved some old growth in, in one big patch. It, it does need to be um, spread around a lot. And, um, you know, they, they have uh, issues with um, predation on them in the dens, whether that's by cougars or wolves or especially other um, bears. So, um, male bears are denning a lot shorter time than female bears, and it leaves the, the females with cubs as a bit of sitting ducks in their dens for a few months. So they need to have very safe dens that are defensible um, within their home ranges. Yeah, They're a pretty solitary creature, aren't they? Yeah. They, they don't, you don't see them grouping together and no. having a big no. conference, you know? They... No, and, and when I sort of plotted all the dens in the Ninkush from our collared bears, it was amazing how evenly scattered they were uh, across the, the valley that uh, the only times there were clusters were when like one male bear had used three different dens in three different winters. So there was you know, kind of a cluster of, of dens where he was. Uh, uh, yeah. Interesting. So do they have, and this is kind of, I guess, getting back to the bear itself, but do they have, uh, do they communicate with each other that, hey, this is where I'm ranging, you should stay over mm-hmm. there? Like, is there, mm-hmm. are there those kind of interactions between them? They're not 
generally considered really territorial, but I mean, in looking at, at our females, especially the f- female home ranges, I mean, we'd go to a clear cut and you'd see five bears in one clear cut, but it was amazing away from the clear cut. You, they really did have distinct areas that each went to. And when you looked at sort of all of the radio locations of different females, they, they kind of, you could see like this one's over here and this one's in the middle and then this one's over here. And when one of the ones in the middle died, it was really interesting to watch the two adjacent females gradually move towards each other and take over the home range of the female who died. Um, so there, there definitely was some, a little territoriality or competition going on between them that they had, had been sort of staying within their, their own ranges. Interesting. So they, they just generally stay out of the way of each other. They, they kind of acknowledge that the others are there and they just... Well, when a female has babies, she kind of gives up part of her home range, like her, the female um, babies tend to, to um, kind of inherit a bit of their mother's home range, whereas the, the males are kicked out and sent off to, to go further and, and find new places to live. And, uh, but the females do stay, tend to stay close. And so I think that's why that happens. Is it like a 50-50 population out there of males and females? or it... There's slightly more females than males, I think. Yeah. Interesting. So um, the, you mentioned that you've been doing some work to try to impress upon the provincial government to maybe change, change some of their approaches. To um, We've been also working to try to get them to change some of their approaches when it comes uh, to, to old growth logging. Um, what is the campaign that you've... And w- when you were here, you said, oh, I don't know anything about social media, <laughs> but you, you've... You put together a very successful campaign. I mean, the number of emails that we've got, the number of res- the amount of res- uh, responses that we've received to the campaign that you oh, um, but the, to our office was quite oh, substantial. That's great. So. I didn't know that. So that's uh, I'm fantastic. So yeah, hashtag Save BC Bear Dens uh, was uh, the hashtag that I used on it, and um, um, yeah, it's been it's been really great. I've had a, a lot of support. I have a change.org petition that is over 2,300 uh, signatures at, at this point, and I've um, uh, just been putting stuff on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, um, I also uh, launched a complaint with the Forest Practices Board of BC, um, asking them to look at whether or not the province is doing enough to protect bear dens. Um, so that's still moving forward. They're going to write a small report on that. So I've gone after sort of regulation change as well as, as just trying to kind of create a lot of pressure. So this week i am got uh, an open letter to the BC government um, asking them to protect bear dens that uh, is getting a lot of signatures on it this week from different NGOs and uh, professional biologists and uh, some First Nations to... Uh, that I'll be presenting to the government in a couple of weeks with the change.org petition and, uh, and trying to get this moved ahead. So uh, have you had a chance to meet with the government to talk to them about this? Have you had any response from them, from the work that you've done to this point? Uh, not directly, no. One more, when you hear the minister talk about biodiversity, this is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about not logging watersheds where salmon require the cover of the canopy, cool water, places to spawn. We're talking about not logging the old growth so that we can have places where bears can den. Um, and, and, and of course, there's just no way to communicate, hey, bears, 
the safe places to then, you know, the park boundaries are just over that way a little bit, I'll right? go over to the next watershed. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, like, we, we can't put out a bullet and say, you know, head over that way. And then we obviously need old growth trees just for the sake that it creates oxygen. <laughs> there's, there's other, you know, so, I mean, I think that as we're looking at the biodiversity, you can't be extracting one of the most important aspects of that biodiversity and liquidating it, uh, and maintain the biodiversity. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a pretty obvious thing to say, but it it feels to me from the responses that we're getting that minister after minister after minister in this province has gotten away with saying, we're doing all of these things at once. We're now coming to the crunch time, I think, where you've got less than 10% of the, of the uh, old growth uh, and not... We're talking big trees. We're not talking the little, uh, you know, high alpine places where bears can den. You know, you can't do that in a tiny little tree. They're, these are yeah, big animals. These big are animals. really big trees. And that's, you know, when when I was working on my project trying to create dens, uh, we were searching for large trees that we could modify into dens. So I was trying to find 160 plus centimeter diameter trees that didn't have a den in them yet, that uh, didn't have an entrance into the central rotted out core and you know the forestry gis models would show oh well this is this is old growth up here and it'd be on a rocky ridge um and you know if a tree was over 50 centimeters diameter i'd be surprised um you know they're unproductive rocky poor ridges that that don't produce big trees and if that's what's being considered old growth um and those numbers are, are elevated as to as to what we have left. We still need to protect productive old growth forests as well, valley bottom productive old growth. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing um, about bears. Do you have the links and contact information and stuff that if people are interested, they want to get a hold of you and, and hear about your campaign, that they can uh, they can contact you? Do you have all those? You had a hashtag. I have hashtag save BC bear dens that uh, you can Google that and it comes up with um, uh, a bunch of the results. And, and if you go to change.org and, and search under hashtag save BC bear dens, it'll come up. And if you want to read more about it, the Narwhal magazine, the narwhal.ca did a fantastic article on what we're trying to achieve. And um, that was great and gives a lot of background. So I'll make sure that those links are all living right next to this podcast. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you uh, for coming in and, and sharing some of your knowledge with us and, uh, and know that we'll continue to, to, to stand up for, these, uh, for the biodiversity, the, the big trees, the big fish, the big bears, even the moderately big bears. <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking me up on the offer to come in and, and share some of your experiences. Well, thanks a lot for the support, I, uh, and I just hope that people go out and enjoy our fantastic bears in the province. Well, I hope you learned something about bears. I certainly enjoyed my time with Helen. We're hearing very consistently that the messaging the government would like us to believe about their resource management practices is not aligning with what professionals are witnessing on the ground. Empty salmon streams, scalped valley walls, old growth numbers inflated by imaginative accounting. Like our work, Helen is trying to get the attention of the Ministry of Forests. She's even filed a complaint with the Forest Practices Board. 
If you are interested in learning more, you can connect with her uh, campaign on social media. On Twitter, search hashtag SaveBCBearDens or visit Helen's petition on change.org. You can find the link in the show notes attached to this or the blog post associated with this podcast. Check out Helen's website at www.artemiswildlife.com. You can also read the Narwhal article about Helen's campaign. That link is also in the show notes attached to this episode. There are so many different podcast platforms out there. Please rate this podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. It will help increase the visibility and grow the audience. I am the member of the British Columbia Legislative Assembly for Saanich North in the Islands. My constituency office is located in beautiful Sydney-by-the-Sea at number 215-2506 Beacon Avenue. We are one block west of the Salish Sea on the second floor of the Landmark Building. I have an incredible constituency team who assist me in advocating for our riding. You can visit us in the office from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. Email is the best way to make initial contact with us. It allows us to keep track of all the correspondence and follow up as necessary. My email address is adam.olson.mla at leg.bc.ca. Our office phone number is 250-655-5600. I'm on all the social media platforms. Find my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Olson for MLA, Twitter at Adam P. Olson, and Instagram at Adam Philip Olson, Philip with two L's. I could have made it easier by having the same handle for everything, but my social media uh, relationships evolved over time, and I didn't have the foresight to be as well organized as that, so didn't happen. I blog daily. You can check out my blog at adamolsonmla.ca. I cover a range of topics from politics to life, to life in politics, and whatever other shiny object catches my attention on any given day. If you enjoy my posts, you can subscribe to be notified of future posts by email, and I do encourage everybody to please share my content. Okay, I think that's about it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging. And until next time, hi, Aqua. <laughs>